Hey, good morning, Springville. It is uh, really great to be able to still be with you this weekend. I would have loved to be with you in person again, uh, but of course, with some of the restrictions right now with COVID, uh, it is almost impossible. Uh, but I'm still glad to be able to join you this morning and uh, preach a little bit of what I have been kind of noticing over this past um, year, especially as a pastor on the ground in the local church and looking specifically at just reflecting over this past season, um, a season for us, all of us really, in, in different ways that has been marked by unrest and conflict and stress and loss of different types and grief, and then compounded by kind of this low-grade hum of tension and anxiety that none of us can really put our finger on and figure out where it's coming from. And that has all been kind of exacerbated by um, a pandemic that really no one can quite get a handle on. Uh, political posturing on almost every single issue over the last year that has led to all sorts of different feelings of tribalism and othering and an economic downturn and racial tensions getting global attention. And then to make matters worse inside the church and amongst Christians, uh, just a sense of infighting and trying to figure out how Christians should be thinking and speaking about all of these things. I saw an article this week by the New York Times that called this feeling languishing. And I think that's the appropriate term for how we have all been feeling uh, for whatever reason throughout this last season. So the question I want to answer and pose for us today, this morning, is, is looking specifically at how can we respond to all of this? And maybe even better, how should we respond to all of this? And by, doing, by asking this question, I want to just look at one of Jesus' most famous, most well-known teachings, most well-known parables of the Good Samaritan. Now, even if you're not in a church or a Christian or within Christian circles, you've heard of the Good Samaritan. It kind of floats around in pop culture as something that's used to talk about random acts of kindness, or we even have it as a compliment of you being a Good Samaritan, which points to you being generous or, or sacrificial or thinking of the other and being a good person. We even have entire charities and nonprofits like the Samaritan's Purse or the Samaritan's Food Bank. And there's even such thing as Good Samaritan laws, which protect you and I when we are trying to help someone out in need. Now, those are all good things and those are all helpful, but the Good Samaritan parable, the story that Jesus tells, is not less than all of that, but it's certainly more. And it's specifically told in the form of a parable. And if you know what a parable is, it's simply just a short story that is used to invite the hearers, the audience, into something that Jesus is describing about the kingdom of God. And Jesus always uses parables not just to give us information, but it's actually more about an invitation. More than just instruction, it's actually an invitation into a lived experience. It's supposed to have this kind of visceral, tangible effect on the audience when he tells a parable. And Jesus tells a lot of stories, a lot of parables. Why? Well, because I think stories, they stay with us. Stories are powerful. Stories invite us into something instead of just allowing us to be passive observers of something. Stories tend to locate us, gives us a sense of situatedness and invites us into a lived experience. And if you know anything about the whole Bible from Genesis to Revelation, the Bible is made up mostly of, of narrative, of story. 
which shows us the main aim of the Bible is not just to simply give us information, but it's actually to form us by the true story that it tells and then invite us into it so that we're changed by it. And that's exactly what Jesus does in this particular story. So let's look at Luke 10, verse 25 through 29 to get us started. And it starts here and says, and behold, this is the author's way, this is Luke's way of saying, and look, watch what's about to happen. A lawyer stood up in the midst of the crowd to put Jesus to the test saying, teacher, rabbi, what shall I do? What can I do? to inherit eternal life or the kingdom of God. It's said in a different way. He said to him, Jesus answered, well, what is written in the law? How do you interpret it? How do you see it? And the lawyer answered, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, you have answered correctly. So do this, go and you will live. But he, the lawyer, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, but who is my neighbor? Pause there for a second. Let's paint the picture for what's happening in this context with this story. What we have here is a young expert in Jewish law, a Jewish lawyer that has come to Jesus to specifically ask him a really important question, which is what must I do to inherit eternal life? What must I do to enter into the kingdom of God? What must I do to actually live under the reign and rule of God? Now, that's a good question. It's actually a great question, but we see the motives of this Jewish lawyer because he's actually trying to come and trap Jesus. He's coming to try to put Jesus to a theological test. He's trying to come and quiz Jesus to kind of figure that out. And when his question actually is, is kind of like theoretical and ideological, right? This is somebody who's like sitting in a theological armchair, just like twisting his mustache, wanting to have theological debates with Jesus. But Jesus doesn't play any games with him at all. Because whereas he asks theoretical and ideological questions, Jesus gives him personal and ethical answers. But he does ask a great question. What must I do to experience life forever? And this question is actually asked of Jesus multiple times throughout the Gospels, throughout the biographies of Jesus. We see it asked by Nicodemus and also the rich young ruler. And Jesus answers very carefully each time based on the questioner who is asking him. And I think that this question is important because every single person asks some version of this question. Whether we're religious or not, whether we come from a religious or churched background or an unchurched, non-religious background, all of us ask this question to some degree. We, we after, after crushing kind of our personal goals and getting that milestone in our career or reaching that kind of um, milestone with our families, at the end of every day, as our head kind of hits the pillow, we all kind of ask this question, is this it? Is this life to the fullest? Is this life forever? Is this what it looks like to actually experience life to the fullest? Ecclesiastes 3.11, a book of poetry in the Old Testament, says that God has put eternity He's put forever in everyone's heart so that we will seek him. And I think that's what's happening here is that we're invited to ask this exact question, but differently. Because if you notice how the lawyer asks this question, he's not actually asking it in a genuine way. He's not asking it for himself to try to better himself and understand who Jesus is and and respond appropriately. He's actually asking so that he can appear justified in the sight of the crowd. You notice that? So rather than come and actually ask it humbly and and in a genuine fashion, he comes and asks so that he can walk away feeling like, wow, look how awesome I am. 
Look how right I am. Look how much I know. All he wants to hear from Jesus in the midst of the crowd is, you're right. You're right. And it's funny and ironic, and that's exactly what Jesus says. He actually tells him that his answer to the question is right. But the lawyer is not satisfied. You notice that. He's not satisfied because he doesn't quite get what he wants. He doesn't quite get the self-justification and kind of the public display of his general awesomeness from Jesus in this exchange. And if you notice Jesus' answer, it's the same answer that he gives in other places throughout the gospel. So we have the same question being asked in different places and we have the same answer, but we see very different circumstances and very different people that are involved in the exchange that we see. In Matthew 22, Jesus, when asked what is the greatest commandment in the law, he gives this same answer. And in Galatians 5 verse 14, the apostle Paul writes and says, all the law, so the entire thing, is fulfilled in one word, one sentence, love your neighbor as yourself. And so right here, the lawyer actually gives the right answer, and we see that kind of corroborated throughout Scripture. He gives the right answer, but it's not exactly what the lawyer wanted. He's not satisfied. Let's look at his answer really quickly and understand what's going on here before we see some of the things that we can learn from not being the lawyer. What he does here is he takes two Old Testament teachings, very popular, well-known Old Testament teachings together, one from Deuteronomy 6 and the other from Leviticus 19. And the first from Deuteronomy 6 is something that the Jews understood um, and, and called the Shema. And it was a, a prayer that they would pray three times daily. And it said, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength. That was the part, part one of the answer. And part two is Leviticus 19, which says, love your neighbor as yourself. Now, what's really interesting about why these two statements summarize and capture the whole law is that it actually captures all of the Ten Commandments, but in two statements. The first four commandments, if you go back to Exodus 20 and take a look this week, you'll see that the first four commandments are love God, love God, love God. And then the last six are how does that show up in love of neighbor? And so the Ten Commandments are, are structured so that there's this vertical plane of, of putting God first and then this horizontal plane of how does it actually overflow in the everyday stuff of life. But what the lawyer leaves out of his answer is actually the most important part of this text. He does quote Leviticus 19, and you and I, we know that passage, but usually we just kind of skip past Leviticus in our annual readings because we're like, do what with what skin and purify that, why, right? And so it's a little bit foreign and strange to us, but what's really interesting is that in Leviticus 19, after the command to love your neighbor as yourself, it's actually followed up with a whole bunch of practical ways to do that. That love of neighbor actually shows up in different ways. Some of the examples in Leviticus 19 are, are intentionally living below our means to save money for the poor and the marginalized. That we would be honest in our financial dealings and our relationships. That we'd be people of integrity. That we would mean what we say. That we would be men and women of our word. That we would pay our debts and our bills on time. So that paying our bills on time is actually an act of love of neighbor. That we wouldn't ignore or overlook the disabled and the disadvantaged, and that we would fight against favoritism at all cost. Those are all the things that follow in Leviticus 19 about what it means to love our neighbor. And what's really interesting about this is what we see in the Ten Commandments and what we see in the lawyer's answer to this question that Jesus poses is that true love for neighbor 
flows out of true love for God. Now, it doesn't justify us before God as if we can do it ourselves, like the lawyer thinks that he can, but what it does do is it shows that we are already justified by God. And notice that the lawyer's response, he skips love of God because he's already nailing that, right? Because he's got the law, he's nailing it. He's a classic religious person justified by their good works. It's like, no, no, love of God, I got that. I'm nailing that. And then he skips over to the neighbor part and asks the question back to Jesus, but who is my neighbor? And so whereas Jesus is not engaging in this kind of like theological armchair thing with him, he wants to get all philosophical with Jesus and be like, yeah, but, but who is my neighbor though? I already know that I should love them, but who is my neighbor? Why does he ask that? Well, what he doesn't ask is he doesn't ask, okay, how can I go and love my neighbor now? He doesn't ask that because he doesn't actually care. He's looking for a way out of what he already knows to be true. He's trying to play semantics with Jesus so that he can make up a category of people and say, not them. So they can make up a category of people of who he decides counts as his neighbor and those who he can say, but I can't love them. And the Pharisees, the professional legal scholars of Jesus' day were notorious for this. They had whole teachings and extra writings and manuscripts about how they felt justified in treating non-Jews and Gentiles and slaves and tax collectors and sinners. They were professionals at creating divisions of us versus them. They were great at taking Bible verses and creating categories of other that didn't require them to go and love those people, whoever those are. What's really interesting about this is that Jesus corrects them another time in a different place in the Gospels where he says, hey, you've heard it said, love your neighbor but hate your enemy. But I say to you. What's really interesting about that is that Jesus is actually correcting not something in Scripture because that's nowhere to be found in Scripture that we should hate our enemy He's correcting their wrong interpretation of Scripture because what they had done is they had created, they had done semantics and philosophized about who counts as their neighbor, who would actually be worthy of their time and their attention and their love and their service. And Jesus, rather than play this game of semantics with him, rather than get into this ideological, let's debate about God's law, let's get in debates about all this stuff, Jesus answers with a story, and I just love that. I love the the rhetoric of this, that Jesus is not even going to. Jesus could. Jesus could get into a theological debate with this guy and absolutely destroy him. But he doesn't. He tells a story and watch what he does. Now Jesus replied, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho and he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and left him half dead on the road. Now pause for a second because this is very familiar. Everybody in the crowd, when Jesus started this story, they would have been like, well, yeah, that's, that's what happens on that road. So this is a real road, okay? You can actually go and visit it today from Jerusalem to Jericho. Now what was interesting is about the landscape is that Jerusalem was about, uh, this road is about 30 kilometers long and Jerusalem was way higher in elevation than Jericho. Jericho was actually below sea level when you look at the map. And what was interesting about this road is that, that priests and Levites and, and Jews that are part of the worshiping community would make this journey often 
from Jerusalem to Jericho because many would live in Jericho and then they would come in for worship to Jerusalem or priests and Levites would go on two-week rotations of work. They would come in, work at the synagogue, work in Jerusalem, and then they'd come home with, with their, their donkeys and, and their, their wheat and their payment and their wine, everything that they earned from their work in Jerusalem. So this is a very familiar scene for the audience at the time. But this road was known to be really dangerous. Not just because of the landscape, it was very steep, it was very windy, there was huge kind of rocky boulders and caves, it was all sorts of, it was, it was known as the way of blood because thieves and marauders would just kind of chill out in the caves and wait to, to come out and rob people of everything that they have. And so when Jesus says, hey, so there was a man and he was coming from Jerusalem to Jericho, you're like, okay, that's, that's really, really normal. That would be like, for, for us today, be like, so in Harlem, in a back alley at midnight, somebody got robbed. You wouldn't be like, whoa, this story's crazy. You'd be like, well, yeah, that's, that's what happens in Harlem, in an alley at midnight. And that's exactly the tension that's created in this story for the audience who's listening to Jesus. And there's no guarantee on the way of blood on this road that anyone would ever discover your body, let alone help you because it was so dangerous. And then Jesus continues the story and with the setting, kind of the table set for us, he continues and says this. Now by chance, a priest was going down that road. Now when Jesus starts with by chance, you know he's being a little bit facetious because he's making a point that this is not by chance. A priest was going down that road. And when he saw him, the man beaten on the side of the road, he passed by on the other side. And so likewise, a Levite came and when he came to that place and saw the man on the side of the road, he also passed by on the other side. Now stop for a second. The tension in the story is that when the priest shows up and comes down the road, there's a, a, kind of a, a sigh of relief in the audience where it's like, oh, phew, help has arrived. Surely the priest who knows the law, who is a good man and a teacher of the law is going to do the right thing. He knows this. He knows the heart of God as it's reflected in the law of God. He's going to do the right thing. He knows Leviticus 19, 18, to love your neighbor as yourself. He teaches it. He knows Micah 6, 8, that we are called to do justice, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. He teaches it. He knows Proverbs 21, 13, that whoever shuts their ears to the cry of the poor and the needy, will also cry himself and not be heard by God. He knows that passage. He teaches it. But notice, he sees the man and he does everything he can to get out of the way and pass by on the other side. Now that's very shocking to the audience, but thankfully a Levite is coming. Now the Levite were the assistants to the priests in the temple, kind of working in the worshiping community. So, so kind of like second in command, surely the Levite is gonna help but he also sees the man in need and passes to the other side. So already from this story, we're really knocked off our equilibrium because the hero of the story who's supposed to be the hero is now not the hero. See, the priests and the Levites would go and they'd work in the temple and they were considered to be ceremonial, clean Jews. And so what would happen is they, they would be ceremonially clean so that they could work in the temple and then they would travel home. And if they traveled home, they couldn't be unclean. So their food couldn't get unclean. They're, 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 they couldn't get within six feet of a dead body, for instance. They couldn't have anything happen to them or they would have to go all the way back, pilgrimage, back to Jerusalem and, 
and do ritual purification laws to become clean. So these two figures in the story, they have justifiable reasons why they shouldn't be the ones to go and help this man on the road. But they're not good reasons. They give the wrong answer and wrong response to the right question. They do nothing. They feel nothing. The only thing that the priest and the Levite do, in fact, is they actually go out of their way to avoid doing something. So we can't miss what's underlying in this text here. That if your beliefs and your theology give you really good reasons to move away from people in need, you have the wrong beliefs. You have the wrong theology. And in the last year, we've seen all sorts of Christian voices shouting from the mountaintops about which kind of people we shouldn't be helping and which kind of people we we should just kind of walk by or which cause we should be no part of at all. And we've come up and we've used Bible verses and we've used God's moral commands to come up with all sorts of reasons why the only thing that we should do is do nothing. And that's what Jesus is calling out here. But he's not just calling out the lawyer that he's speaking to with this story. He's calling out everyone. This is you. This is me. This is us. All day, every day, we pass by needs. We choose self-preservation. We think first about my food and my family and and my house and, and me over the needs of others who have far less than what we have ever had. So this is not just to the lawyer. We can be like, yeah, get him, Jesus. This is to you and to me. And watch the story gets stranger. It's confrontational and it's weird and the tension is building, but now it gets strange. Watch this, verse 33. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, he came to where he was and he saw him, the man, and he had compassion. And he went to him and he bound up his wounds and he poured oil and wine, very expensive from his own cost. Then he set him on his own animal and he brought him to an inn and he took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii, so or denarius, which is a day's wage, so two days worth of wages. And he gave them to the innkeeper and he said, take care of this man and whatever more you spend, I will pay it back when I return. Pause there for a second. This story would be so shocking to the first century audience. Why? Because it was a Samaritan. The priest and the Levite did nothing. And the audience would have been waiting for the third kind of like tier on the socioeconomic caste system in Israel at that time. They would have been waiting for the Jew. So it's like the priest did nothing, that's bad. The Levite did nothing, that's bad. But surely a good Jew a God-fearing Jew would come and do something. But Jesus smashes the entire paradigm and he comes and he says, but a Samaritan. Now, I don't think we can capture the tension of this, how radical this is in our day. Because this was centuries long, 700 years of tension, of terrorism, of war between the Jews and the Samaritans. They absolutely hated each other. Now, if you understand, I'll save you some of the details, but Samaritans were kind of half Jewish, half Assyrian. They were mixed race people. And the Jews viewed the Samaritans as heretics theologically because they tended to kind of take progressive liberal cultural ideas and sprinkle them into the Orthodox Jewish system, but also as half-breeds ethnically because they mixed with the Assyrians back in the day. 
They were inferior to the Jews in every way, according to them, in social and religious and racial categories. But on the flip side of that is that Samaritans also hated Jews because they saw them as racist, cruel, and hateful because most of the time they were. This is so radical that I can't even come up with an example in modern day history. The transatlantic slave trade and the African-American experience in America today doesn't touch how radical and the tension between these two people groups and how crazy it would have been for Jesus to use even the word Samaritan, let alone make him the hero of the story. If you remember in a different passage in John 4, when Jesus encounters the woman at the well, she says to Jesus, wait, wait, like, why are you talking to me? Like, Jews don't associate with Samaritans. Like, they don't even associate with each other. They don't even look at each other. And in John 8, a little bit longer, uh, after that passage, you see a frustrated group of religious people say to Jesus, you are a Samaritan and demon-possessed. So Samaritans are on the level of your Satan, which is not a good look, Right? And Jesus takes that and he makes the Samaritan the hero of the story, but not just that. He makes him the hero that comes and saves the half-dead Jewish person on the side of the road. This is wild for Jesus to do. This whole story, I know we've turned it into like, now go and be a good person. This story is so radical because Jesus just called out racism, social hierarchies, and religious fundamentalism all in like three sentences. This is very, very brazen, very, very crazy. These are the kinds of things that Jesus says. And then in the black letters of your Bible, the group will walk away and be like, this guy's got to go. We got to get rid of this guy when he says stuff like this. And Jesus tells this and shocks the audience and confronts the lawyer and then asks this question. Watch this. Verse 36. Which of these three, the priest, the Levite, and the Samaritan, do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers. And the lawyer answered, the one who showed him mercy. He can't even say the word Samaritan. That's how deep his hatred is. It's the one, that, the, the last guy, the last guy at the end there who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, you go and do likewise. You go be like that guy. This is crazy. Jesus tells the story to ask the question to the lawyer. I know you told me that you know that you should go and love God and love neighbor, but in this story that I just told you, who proved to be a neighbor? Whereas the lawyer is looking for what he can do and justify himself, Jesus says this is not about doing, it's about being. And he counters the question with who is my neighbor that the lawyer asks with what kind of neighbor are you? What kind of neighbor am I? And remember, this is a, a, an impossible task that Jesus tells the lawyer to go and do. The lawyer has all, always been trying to justify himself. And the point of this whole story is that he can't. No one can. I can't. You can't. And I think here Jesus is nodding to Matthew 9, verse 36. And it says this about Jesus, that when Jesus saw the crowds, he looked out on the groups of people, all sorts of class race, religion, all sorts of people. He had compassion for them because they were helpless like sheep without a shepherd. The point of this story is that we know a God who sees, who feels compassion and acts on that compassion. 
that we have a God who comes to the half dead, the beaten, the broken, those who have been left for dead, not even just half dead, but fully dead. In Ephesians 2, you know that we were dead in our trespasses and sins, but by the grace of God, we are saved. Or in Romans 5, that God demonstrates his love. He acts upon it. He doesn't just sit up in the heavens and, and throw thoughts our way or hope that we find our way to him, but that God actually demonstrates his love for us. All of us at the side of the road, like this, that while we were yet sinners, dead in sin, Christ died for us and gave his life for us. Jesus is taking all of this in this parable and he's saying, God sees God hears, God feels, God acts. God doesn't just pass by us regardless of the condition we are in. Even if we put our life in that condition on our own, he draws near, he comes near, he bandages us up at his cost. He takes us in, he cares for us and he restores us. That's what Jesus is getting at here. In this story, there's so much more than just go and be a good person. This is nothing short of the whole gospel here. That it breaks down every barrier, that the gospel between, the, 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 the barriers between you and God, the barriers between race and ethnic differences, between socioeconomic brackets, between political affiliation, that the gospel comes and breaks down all of those barriers. Because there's no barriers between us and the God who actually sees and feels and acts. And then Jesus takes this and he turns to the lawyer and to the crowds and he says, go and do likewise. So what does this look like? How do we go and do like, how do we respond to something like this? We see the negative example in the lawyer, but how do we positively respond to something like this? Well, if you notice, the Samaritan does three things that the priest and the Levite do not. The first is that he saw something. Whereas the priest and the Levite, they looked away. That the Samaritan actually saw he noticed there was an awareness of a need. He saw something worth moving towards, whereas the priest and the Levite, they saw as well, but looked away. The second thing is that the Samaritan felt something. He felt compassion on the man on the side of the road, whereas the priest and the Levite felt nothing. They felt nothing other than self, self, everything. Self-preservation, self-protection, that's the only thing they felt. And the Samaritan felt compassion. And third, the Samaritan did something at their own cost, at his own cost, whereas the priest and the Levite did nothing. And the more that I kind of survey some of the conversations around the country and the globe over this last year, we are fed a long list of reasons, church, of why we should just walk by real people with real needs. And over this past year, I've heard lots of reasons why Christians should engage in this or that or not engage in this and that. But it poses the question for you and I, how many of us are more comfortable coming up with reasons to walk by the hurting and the needy than actually seeing, feeling, and acting like we see in this parable? I know COVID makes things way more complicated. It definitely restricts us for what we can and cannot do. And that's why this is not a message where I'm gonna give you 11 things to go and do and just we can walk out with like a heavy burden of guilt of going and doing more because that's not the point either. But I do know that the natural posture of my heart and yours is to just walk 
by. So let me ask, how aware are you of the needs around you? Not out there, not overseas, but like right where you are. How aware are you? How much do you even see the needs where you are? The Samaritan saw, he, he felt compassion and then he did something. And when, when he saw the need, he didn't sit and ask and like pontificate and, and theorize around how that person got into that situation. Oh, I wonder why that person's an addict. Maybe they're an addict because it's their own fault, so I shouldn't help them. God forbid I enable them to make bad decisions. Or you know what? I'm going to wait for more facts to come out to see whether that person deserved being treated as an image bearer with human dignity. We do this all the time. We see the media do it all the time and then just seeps in and it affects your heart and mine. Samaritan didn't ask those questions. He moved towards the need. He sacrificed and used out of his own pocket, his own cost, at his own expending of energy and money and time and economics to help the person in need. But the priest and the Levite come up with all sorts of reasons and they use scripture to justify them doing nothing, seeing nothing, feeling nothing. Just hear me, that you and I will never feel or act on something we don't see. And today we are so conditioned as passive observers of the world around us. We sit behind browsers, it's what they're called, and we just scroll and we, we just browse and it keeps us safe in a cocoon at arm's length away from all sorts of needs separated by a screen or a device while we sit on our sofa. And it's so easy, we just see needs and we scroll right past. We walk right past. We don't see, we don't feel, we don't act, we just scroll. And we end up detached and we end up unaffected and we end up apathetic and we end up chasing self-preservation ultimately because it's the gospel good news that you and I believe that this life is actually about us and for us. And we live our day-to-day lives walking by. And just self-preservation, self-protection, a posture of disinterest, just a general meh to other people's needs, other things that they need, anything that would distract me from my self-preservation project and my self-interest doesn't get any look from me. I feel nothing for it and I act not at all towards it. This is a very serious thing that in our Western culture, the creep of it is so real. This disinterest, this apathy, because it's not something that we really can change or manufacture from the outside. Ephesians 4 actually says that this apathy is hardness of heart. It starts inside. That, that, that word for hardness of heart in Ephesians is actually the word for marble. Like, it, like it's hard, like marble. Nothing can penetrate it. It's dead to feeling. It's scar tissue. It's insensitive. It's, it's desensitized. Nothing can rouse me out of my apathy, rouse me out of my self-protection and my comfort, especially if it's to go and sacrifice at my cost for someone else. And apathy is so easy, church, it is. It really is, it's so easy, but yet so dangerous. And it's so easy because it's, it inconveniences us. It shackles you and I to ourself. And that's exactly what the lawyer does in this exchange with Jesus. He's looking to justify himself by doing the bare minimum. 
just so he could go away justified, just so he could go away in his own pride and be like, look how awesome I am. I'm so great. At least I'm not like, fill in the blank. And Jesus exposes it for what it is because it is deeper, it is a heart issue. Uh, Pastor John Piper writes a ton about this, but he says this about apathy. Listen, apathy is passionless living. It is sitting in front of the TV night after night, living your life from one moment of entertainment to the next. It is an inability to be shocked into action by the lostness and suffering of the world. Hear this. It is the emptiness that comes from thinking of godliness as the avoidance of doing bad things instead of the aggressive pursuit of doing good things. Church, so many of us, just like the lawyer, has bought into the lie that Christianity is about avoiding bad things, the big, the big sins, the big bad ones, instead of seeing the Christian life as being a part of a community that is radically generous and hospitable to the people that we are sent out to love as our neighbors. Instead of just avoiding bad sins, that we would actually be passionate and just ravenous and reckless about good things, about actually going and seeing and feeling and acting like the God that we claim to know and love and follow. So when we actually just strip back the surface level of this parable, we see that this parable has far less to do with being a good person and everything to do with how comfortable we are doing nothing good at all. So let me ask, what would Springvale look like if they were transformed by this? What would Springvale look like if you, as a part of the body, saw and felt and acted like this? What would it look like for the whole York region to be saturated with followers of Jesus, not professional Christians, but everyday ordinary missionaries like you and me. And the York region is saturated by these kinds of followers of Jesus who actually go and feel compassion and look upon the crowds of lost, broken, hurting people and see them for who they are and then draw near to them and care for them and hear them and see their real faces and know their real names. What would it look like? What would it look like to do this everywhere we find ourselves? What would it look like to actually saturate anywhere where you are, anywhere where you find yourself with this kind of radical compassion, love, and generosity? Now, with that question in mind, here's the good news behind all of this. The good news about something like this is that if you, like me, continue to fight against this apathetic heart, this temptation to just walk by needs. Here's the good news. God will not let his people not care. Praise God. He will not let us not care. If we are actually in tune with what he is doing in the world, if we are actually in tune with the good news of the gospel, if we are actually in the word of God, understanding the heart of God, he will not let his people not care. He will never say to you and I, well, you don't care, well, neither do I. He will never do that because that's not who he is. It's not in his nature. It's not his heart. And the other good news is that what Jesus does here is he defines our neighbor very differently than you and I would. 
And he does two things at the exact same time and it's brilliant and it's beautiful and it's gorgeous in all sorts of ways. But what Jesus does here with neighbor is that he universalizes neighbor and specifies neighbor at the exact same time. And what that means is that you and I tend, if we make loving our neighbor into everybody, it will quickly become us loving nobody. Do you see the danger in that? That if we universally, yeah, just go love everyone, you'll love no one. If you go and I'll just, I'll try to take care of every need, you'll take care of no need. But if we start at the other place and we start at the, the specific, local, hyper-local, real level, and we all commit ourselves to that, and we look at our actual literal neighbors, and we love real faces and real names with real needs, the universal neighbor, neighbor will be loved by the work of the church. And that's the good news here. And the word for neighbor that's used in the Greek, it's really nice because it's actually just someone who is near. That's all. That our neighbor is anyone who is near. Near you and near me. It means that it's everybody who is next to you, where you live, and how you live. Hear that again. That your neighbor is everyone that is next to you, where you live, and how you live. Regardless of race, language, religious belief, political opinion, sexual orientation, past, present, terrible decisions. Regardless of any of those things, they are your neighbor and mine. So we can't come up with a category of but who is my neighbor? Because Jesus tells us that your neighbor and mine is everyone next to us where we are and how we are. And there's two sides to this coin. Two sides to this kind of neighbor coin is that it, it, first of all, it is our literal neighbors. Are you with me on that? Like, like it's, it's our literal neighbors. It's not our metaphorical neighbors, right? Like, like if you and I just have, see this as a metaphorical teaching about our metaphorical neighbors, then what we'll do is we'll go and we'll metaphorically love other people, which does no actual good, right? So this is literally our neighbors three or four of our literal neighbors, where we find ourselves, in our workplaces, in our neighborhoods, on our streets, in our condos, in our apartments, wherever we find ourselves, three or four literal neighbors. And secondly, this also means people next to us everywhere else we find ourselves. Three or four people that are literally next to us anywhere we find ourselves people that we cross paths with, how we do life. In our ordinary rhythms, our week to week, who is it? That we can say these are our neighbors and we can identify who those are. In Springville right now, you're, you're walking through and trying to explore something called the My Four initiative where we look and we identify four people. It's like, who are those four people? God, like help me pray and, and, and identify those real four people that I can not only just be praying for and, and maybe finding good ways to have spiritual conversations and introduce the gospel, but maybe I can start with loving them, hearing them, seeing them, knowing their story, listening to them before trying to answer them, that that would be the compassion that would well up inside of us because God loves those four people way more than you do already. And that's the good news. So for us, as the church, collective, capital C, and for you, Springvale, as the church where you are, how can we love the people next to us wherever we are? How can we go and love the people next to you wherever you are, whoever they are, 
That is what this text is calling out of us. That God gives us all that we have, church, so that others can actually have all that they need. And I don't think, I don't think this is a utopian pipe dream that Jesus kind of pushed into us and said, well, good luck, because God is already at work. Half of the work in doing this and loving our neighbors is showing up because God is already at work in our neighborhoods. He's already at work in our schools. He's already at work in our coworkers and in our communities, in and through our churches. All we have to do is show up. So whoever they are, wherever they are, starting with wherever they are on, on religion, on, on politics, on, on views of sexuality, on views on money, on views on, on the, the good American or Canadian dream, whatever it is, we need to go and we need to see. We need to feel. We need to act. And here's the good news. We will fail at this. It'll be messy. We will fail at it sometimes. We will succeed at it other times, but it'll all be done in obedience to the call that God has on our life as the church, in community to go and actually see and know and love our neighbors as a reflection of the love that we have already seen and felt and experienced in the work of Jesus. Let me pray for you and me to that end. Father, we're so thankful that you're a God who sees, that you're a God who feels, that you're a God who acts. You're not a God who just sits back and waits for us to figure things out, to pull up our bootstraps, to get ourselves out of the messes that we put ourselves in, but that you see us, that you draw near to us, you come to us and you lay your life down, Jesus, for us so that we might experience life to the fullest. You take care of Satan's sin and death because it's the only thing, Lord, that silences the life that you want to give to us. And I just pray right now that in Springville, that you, would, you spirit of God would just impress this upon each heart and mind, that you would help them identify the, whoever those four people are, those neighbors, wherever they are, and whoever they are, that you would help identify who they are and you would fill them with the patience and the grace and the compassion that they need to go and love them as neighbor so that they would come to see you, God, and come home to you as their God, Lord, and Savior. We thank you, we need you, and we ask that you would do this in and through us, but for your name and for your fame. We ask these things in Jesus' name, amen.